Hey Fairfax, I've got some announcements for you. Are you looking to connect? This is a great time to sign up for a small group. This is your opportunity to get to know your church family and dive in deep to God's word. If you're interested, you can visit us online or come chat with us after the service. We'd be happy to get you connected. Baptisms are a month away and we are so excited about it. In addition, our children's ministry is offering a baptism workshop. If your child or your grandchild are interested in learning more about what getting baptized is about, we really encourage them to attend. If you want to find out more information, email us at Fairfax Kids. Speaking of children's ministry, we are so excited to see our classrooms fill with kids. And that's where you come in. Are you looking for a place to serve? It doesn't have to just be in the classroom. Are you gifted at tech support? Do you love to perform? Or do you just wanna set up crafts and supplies? Or do you have a heart to meet and greet our families as they come into our space? Please join us for food, a tour, and a brief introduction into our ministry. Join us on August 29th. We can't wait to see you there. Well, that's all I've got for this week. Let's get back to the service, and I hope you enjoy the message. Good morning, Fairfax Church. It is so good to see you this morning, whether you are here in person, in the blue seats, or online. We're so glad that you have chosen to worship with us today. My name is Jessica Eitblecht. I am one of the pastors on staff, and I just wanted to tag on to what Leanne was talking about there at the end. Um, I'm a parent, I have two kids, and uh, my, when my daughter Ella, who's uh, she's three and a half now, but when she moved from the toddler room into the preschool hallway, over at Fairfax Kids, I, as a parent, was like, I would like to do something to help out over in Fairfax Kids. And um, I was a preschool teacher in a former life, and uh, I also really like the Bible, which I realize is the most cliche thing for a pastor to stand on stage and tell you is that I like the Bible, but I do. And so um, they have in over there all of our, starting in preschool all the way uh, through, well, you guys, really, um, we have kind of a large group, small group model for ministry. And so when our... Uh, preschoolers gather for large group, then somebody goes and tells them the Bible story for that day live. And um, and so I volunteered to do that once a month. And that is uh, the way that I volunteer because I, I, it combines preschoolers and the Bible, two of my favorite things. And so it is like a, a perfect fit for me. That might make you break out in hives to think about, you know, preschoolers and telling a Bible story or something. And so one of the things that our Fairfax Kids team is so good at doing is, uh, is matching people with the gifts and talents and abilities and interests that they are bringing with them when they sign up to volunteer. And so um, there is a role for you somewhere in Fairfax Kids. We need about 150 people to step up to start to volunteer in Fairfax Kids over these next few weeks, especially as we look at a full fall in children's ministry. And so all I'm asking you to do today is to consider putting, you should have gotten an orange card as you walked in the door. And all I'm asking you today is to take the orange card home and to put these dates on your calendar and to decide to show up after one of the services uh, this weekend, the weekend of August 29th, to show up to after one of the services to, um, to just talk with them. Maybe you are not a parent and so you've never been over in the Fairfax Kids hallway because you're like, I don't know if I should go creeping over in the kids area if I'm not a parent. And you're right, you shouldn't. We have rules about that. 
but maybe you've never seen the space, and so you would just like to see what Fairfax Kids looks like, what, is the hall, what do the rooms look like, maybe you aren't really even sure where the right place is for you. Uh, just meet with them and ask some questions and get some food, tour our incredible children's ministry facility. Um, so just put this date on your calendar and just take that step, and maybe, um, maybe God will speak to you and, and you will uh, decide to do something in addition. So, um, so yeah, we need people of all ages and stages to help out, so I hope that you We'll do that. I also wanted to let you know that we are going to take a little bit of a pause from our Saturday night service for the next three weeks. And so um, this might impact some of you who occasionally come on Saturday or who regularly come on Saturday night. Um, we, uh, our staff and volunteers have just worked really hard all summer long, and um, we are just wanting to give them a little bit of a break, a chance to catch their breath as we head into what will undoubtedly be a very busy fall season. And so we're gonna take a pause from Saturday night, basically through Labor Day for the next three weeks, and, um, and maybe give them, also give them a chance to just have a few Saturdays to spend with their families uh, before school starts again and all the things start again. And so um, I realize that for some of you that might be super inconvenient, that might mean having to rearrange your schedule in some ways. And so I just wanted to say thank you so much. Every time we come before you as a church and say we're going to step back from this in some way to give our staff and volunteers a break, uh, you as a congregation just respond so graciously to that. And I, I'm really appreciative of that. So thank you so much, you guys. Um, you guys are awesome. One last thing, it is Child Dedication Weekend. I'm gonna talk more about that at the end, but I'm super excited to be with you for that. We have not had a child dedication service since June of 2019. So we're dedicating kids this weekend who are like two and a half, three years old. Uh, and so it is gonna be, um, it's gonna be a really special moment at the end, um, and I'm really excited to be doing that. But first, we are uh, in week five, I think. We are several weeks into a series on Revelation that we've been working through for a while. And um, every single week, we have reiterated three of the same points, and we are going to reiterate them again today, because I think these are so important for you to remember. First, you need to understand that uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a letter. And that it's a letter that Jesus' disciple, John, who has been banished to the island of Patmos because of his faith, Jesus's uh, disciple John has written this letter um, based on a vision that Jesus gives him. And he's written this letter to a specific group of people in a specific location at a specific time dealing with a specific set of circumstances, right? And so, um, so this is really important for us to remember. It's, it's to seven churches in Asia, which is the, this part of Asia is modern day Turkey. And they're uh, living at the end of the first century and they are, are experiencing some unspeakable forms of persecution, uh, these seven churches are. Now, the reason that it's so important for us to understand is because, for us to understand those things, is because it keeps us who are living in the 21st century from interpreting or reading the letter in a way that could not have made sense to the people who initially received the letter at the end of the first century, right? Like, it doesn't make sense for the letter to only make sense to us based on events that are happening in 2021. If, those, if, if that interpretation means that people who have read it for 2,000 years before now would not have been able to understand it. God's word is authoritative and it's timeless. And, uh, and so that means that it has to be relevant to every generation that reads it. 
And it can't be irrelevant for 2,000 years and then all of a sudden become relevant in 2021. And I don't know about you, I grew up in church and so, um, so I've experienced this. I'm, uh, I'm coming up quick on 40 and so just in the 40 years of life that I've had, there have been times where I've heard interpretations of revelation that have been specific to the current events that were happening at that time and now in 2021, those interpretations that are just like 20, 25 years old are completely outdated and don't make any sense. And so we have to resist against doing that. And then the third thing is you have to understand that revelation is a part of a literature, of a genre of literature that's known as apocalyptic literature. And apocalypse means to unveil or to reveal something. And so it's filled with all of this imagery and symbolism and people are represented as animals and historical events are represented by things like earthquakes and floods and colors and numbers have meaning and, and all of these different layers. And, um, and there's other apocalyptic literature in the Bible, the, the book that is most often thought of when you talk about about apocalyptic literature outside of Revelation is the book of Daniel, quite a bit of apocalypse in that book. And, uh, and you have to think about apocalyptic literature the same way you think about like poetry or, um, or music or even movies. And the purpose of those art forms is not just to engage our minds, it's also to ignite our spirit. And that's what apocalyptic literature does. It ignites the spirit. It helps us to feel something. And uh, when we're going through hard times, like these seven churches where we need to feel something that ignites the spirit. So the first week, we looked at Jesus's message to the churches, and then the second week, we looked at window number one, uh, where John sees this vision of a throne. Oh, I forgot to tell you the second thing, which is really important, and that's that this isn't chronological. I went from one to three, sorry. This is not chronological, and that's really important as we're talking about these windows. So you can't start at Revelation 1 and read straight through and assume that each thing happens consecutively, like one right after another. The, uh, the different visions, they overlap, and you'll notice some similar themes that emerge in one vision after another, and they build on one another in certain ways, but they're not chronological. And so it's kind of like, um, and they're, they're, all, they're each looking at the same reality, but through like a slightly different lens. So it's kind of like if you were to hold a gemstone up and to look out through the gemstone, then you would kind of see the reality and it would look a certain way. And if you were to turn that gemstone just a little tiny bit and look through it, you'd be looking at the same reality, but it would look different, right? And so, uh, so it doesn't happen chronologically and that's really important too. And so one of the places where we see that and the reason why I thought to go back and realized I had missed it is because... Uh, uh, the third week, the first week we looked at window number one, which is like the first part of the vision where John sees this vision of a throne. And it's a throne where all of creation has turned its attention towards this throne and is worshiping the one on the throne. And then the third week we looked at window two and that's where we see a scroll with seven seals and the scroll represents life and the seven seals represent the things that the enemy puts in the way to keep us from experiencing that life. And so Jesus in that window opens each of the seven seals uh, and that is to symbolize Jesus taking away the power, those things, things power to keep us from experiencing the life that God has for us. The fourth week, Josh walked us through window number two, where John sees the blowing of seven trumpets that herald the inbreaking of God's kingdom into this broken, sinful world and reminded us that as we worship and pray, as we turn our attention to the one on the throne, that we are experiencing the inbreaking of that kingdom. And then last week, Rod reminded us that uh, of all the very real powers of sin and evil that are still at work in the world and that the weapons that we have to fight against those powers don't look like the weapons of the world. World, that instead we fight with patient endurance and with faithfulness, remembering always that the outcome has already been determined. So, so far we've had seven seals, we've had seven trumpets, and today we have seven bowls. And that's what we're going to talk about in chapters 15 and 16 of Revelation, which is where we're going to camp out 
today. I think you'll notice as we get going that there are some similar themes that seem to come back up over and over again in these two chapters. And if you have been with us, if you have been maybe like me, you have noticed maybe for the first time, maybe it's been a refresher, how much John's visions have some of the same themes that seem to come up almost redundant in wanting to make sure that a few things get like hammered home for us by the time we get to the end of Revelation. And certainly uh, the overlap, you'll see the overlap today as we work through this. I'm curious though, before we turn to the text, how many of you can relate to or have experienced or suffer from what uh, Susie Allison over at busytoddler.com refers to as mid-project regret syndrome? Maybe some of you, like just hearing that phrase, you're like, oh, I know what that is. So let me tell you a little, how I, like the thing that comes to mind for me when I think about mid-project regret syndrome. This is like, think about the time, a time in your life where you were getting ready to move. And the place you were moving to, whether it was a house or if you were changing locations, maybe this was when you went to college, maybe this was uh, when your like family had outgrown a house and you are so excited because you're moving into a place with a lot more space, or or maybe it was maybe you got married and it was moving into a space with your with your new spouse or whatever. But think about a time when you were so excited to be in the new place, like it had it was the fulfillment of some things for you. And now I want you to think about the way that you felt 48 hours before it was time to load the truck. That is mid-project regret syndrome. That feeling of like you're walking around the house and every drawer that you're open, you're like, oh, I haven't emptied that one. Like that one has to be packed still. Or you like, you open a cabinet and you're like, oh, I forgot all this stuff was even in here. Like, why do we have so much stuff? What is happening in our house right now? That is mid-project regret syndrome where you're like, you, that you can see, like you can picture yourself making coffee in your new kitchen in just a few short days. Like you, the vision is so clear to you, you could almost reach out and touch it, but your reality is so far from that. And the amount of work that stands between you and the achievement of that vision is a little bit maybe overwhelming. If you're anything like me, I experience mid-project regret syndrome all the time in so many different ways. And if you're anything like me, when you're in the middle of it, it can be very overwhelming. It can feel very stressful. You maybe take that out on the people closest to you. I'm not saying I do. I just heard about a guy one time who did that. Uh, Maybe you deal with your mid-project regret syndrome by like procrastinating or by like, like, I don't know, rage cleaning or something. Certainly in grad school, I had this issue where I would have like a major paper that was due and I would be like in the middle of the paper and like there's no way to get the paper done but to just sit down and do it, right? Like fingers to keys, there's the only way to make the paper happen. But I somehow could find 150,000 other ways that I was supposedly working on the paper other than fingers to keys. That is mid-project regret syndrome when things have to get a whole lot messier before they can get better. And I think this applies to other, way, other places in life too. For example, therapy. If any of you have ever been in therapy before, then you can maybe appreciate that oftentimes things have to get a lot messier and get a lot worse before they can get better. That you have to go through, through some things that maybe stir some stuff up for you, that, that bring up some new things before you can have dealt with those and you can move on. Or um, budget. The first time maybe you ever sat down to work on a budget, particularly if you were trying to create a budget alongside of another person, things have to get a whole lot messier before they can get better with the budget, right? Or any single relational conflict you have ever gone through, whether that was a a friendship or a romantic relationship or whatever, you know that feeling when you need to talk to somebody, like there's something and you need to deal with it, like you need to talk to them about it. And, uh, And so you're thinking about it and you're working on it and then finally like there they are and you like say the first sentence, 
You like step into the conflict, just that first step. And it's like, now you're in it and you've got to see it all the way through. And it's probably going to get a whole lot messier before it gets any better. I would even say, I'm not, I'm not saying that I experienced mid-project regret syndrome about birthing my babies. And yet, there's a degree to which parenting is like, things are only gonna get messier before they get any better, right? Like you can maybe appreciate, like there are times in parenting where uh, things are only gonna get worse. Things are only gonna get more overwhelming before you get to the other side of whatever it is that you're dealing with with your kids. So we experience this all the time. And I don't wanna be in any way cavalier about the very serious nature of the text that we're gonna study today, because it is, it's a heavy text. But maybe have this idea in the back of your mind as we work through this passage today. The idea that you're partway through something and you have to see it all the way through to the end. There's no going back. We can't go back to the way things were. We have to see this through to the end and things, it's gonna be worth it. When we get to the other side of all of this, it's gonna be worth it, but things are gonna get a whole lot worse before they get any better. And a lot of the hard stuff is still in front of you. Chapter 15 opens with what is sort of a celestial temple service. And uh, John is kind of peering back the curtain to watch how a, a temple worship service would happen in the heavens. And we read this in chapter 15, verse one. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is complete. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So we have in this very first part of this vision, uh, this image of the, the faithful people of God standing beside a sea of water, singing songs of praise, singing the song of Moses. And if you're thinking to yourself that that seems familiar, then you're absolutely right. John is explicitly recalling our attention to the Exodus story. It's, it's intentional on his part. And if you remember the story in Exodus, there we have the people of God, the Hebrew people who are being led, who are led out of Egypt by their leader Moses, and they get to the sea, and they have to cross the sea, or the, the Pharaoh's army, the Egyptian army, is going to get them because they're, they're chasing them. Right? And so they have to cross the sea. And so God does this mighty act where he parts the Red Sea and the people walk through on dry land. And on the other side of the sea, when they are safe from Pharaoh's, from Pharaoh's army coming after them, they sing songs of praise. And so we are intentionally being reminded of this Exodus story as we uh, move into this new story. And um, this is a retelling of the Exodus story, only now it's the faithful people of God who have been victorious over the beast who are standing beside the sea and singing songs of praise. Last week, uh, Rod talked about the beast and the mark of the beast and, and the people who were victorious and, and did not, chose not to take the mark of the beast. And so those are the people that we're talking about. So this is a retelling of the Exodus story. Um, our celestial temple service isn't over yet, though. It's about to take a little bit of, of a turn. Verse five, after this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple. That is the tabernacle of the covenant law and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. 
And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So remember that the temple in Jerusalem was the dwelling place of God, was the center of all religious worship and was uh, the holy of holies there inside the temple was this room that nobody was allowed to enter except for the high priest once a year to atone for sin. And, uh, and that was because it was this, uh, the, the holy of holies was the, believed to be the place where God's very presence dwelt. God's dwelling place right there in the middle of Jerusalem. And so this is a throne up in heaven where, uh, where the, there's a similar kind of holy of holies idea and the smoke is imagery for God's very special particular presence that has filled the temple, has kind of filled that holy of holies room and nobody can go in it until God is done doing whatever it is that God is doing in there. And so you have these um, angels who are walking around in celestial priestly garments that are reminiscent of the garments that the priests would wear to do their temple work and um, uh, and so this is what is all happening um, in this. And, and uh, no one can go in until God's done. And then, verse, chapter 16, verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Now, I have read this passage uh, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 times in the last week as I was preparing for this weekend. And every time the description of the wrath of God makes me shudder a little bit. The description of, of pouring out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth just kind of gives me pause. And I just wanted to mention that uh, in transparency and also in case maybe reading about this makes some of you uneasy as well. Um, I think it's supposed to. I think it's supposed to make us a little bit uncomfortable to hear about the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. I think it's okay that it does. Um, I read uh, probably four or five different scholars talking about this text today who all made the point that at this point in the, in the Revelation story, as we have these different visions and, and things are building upon one another, that um, it's pretty clear that if you are a person who is still on the earth, who is experiencing the, these, these, these plagues, this wrath of God, that, that God didn't just like pour a bowl of wrath down over the earth indiscriminately right? But that if you are a person who's experiencing this wrath, then you are a person who has not just once, but repeatedly over time, consistently, with multiple decision points along the way, made a choice, not just that you're not interested in God, not just that you are apathetic towards God, but that you have chosen to intentionally be against God, that you have turned away and chosen to join yourself with the forces of evil, with the forces of sin and brokenness, that you have pledged your loyalty to the one who, to the, to the beast, to the, one who is, uh, who, to the one who is evil, to the one who is the source of evil and sin. And so we talk all the time about God being just and about God being on the side of the marginalized and the powerless. And this is God acting against those powers that keep people marginalized and powerless. These plagues, the wrath of God, is God's just action against racism and against human trafficking and against abuse in all its forms. This is God's justice being poured out on evil, dealing with the power of sin, dealing with evil. And so, yes, the plagues are awful. They're awful to read about. They would, have been, they would be awful to experience. They're awful because they are a response to evil, to the awful nature of sin and evil. And at the same time, as God's people, we don't delight in God's wrath being poured out on the earth. It's okay that we don't take, and probably it's, it's appropriate, it's, it's right for us to not delight in God's wrath 
being poured out. And so it's okay if you feel a little bit of like a pit in your stomach as you read about this stuff. In keeping with our Egypt theme in this window, the first four bowls are all similar to the plagues of Egypt that the, that the people there experienced. And they're kind of ticked through pretty quickly. John is moving through those, but then the last three sort of take a turn. And so we're gonna spend the rest of our time on the last three bowls that get poured out. And here's where some of that, things have to get a lot harder before they get better, kind of comes into play. They seem to usher in the beginning of the end. They are a direct attack on the forces of evil, seemingly summoning them for some sort of battle. And with each new plague, the people being impacted by these plagues, they resist repentance and instead they kind of double down on their loyalty to the beast and to the forces of evil. In chapter 16, verse 10, we read, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throat of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. It's a direct assault on the throne of the beast. And there's darkness and there's pain and we don't know what the pain comes from, but it's there and, uh, and the people refuse to repent. They just continue to, to pledge their loyalty. And then in verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and the water, its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. So the Euphrates River was a boundary river. So if you have, uh, if you have the, the Roman Empire that's kind of right here, and then you have two other kingdoms that are outside of the Roman Empire right here, and the Euphrates River is the boundary line between these other two kingdoms that are to the east of the Roman Empire. And so this plague is drying up that water source that was a key source for these two other nations. And it does two things. One, it makes it so that they are without water, and so their kings come out so that they can find out what's going on. Why is there no water in our water source? And it also literally kind of makes makes a path into Rome for these kings. And so it's, this, this plague is, is creating a path, is providing a way for foreign kings and kingdoms to come into Rome to wreck destruction. And then in verse, uh, and then out of nowhere, so this is all happening, and then out of nowhere in verse 15, we read this, Jesus speaks, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Now, if you feel like this declaration by Jesus is a little out of place, uh, you would not be alone. There is a lot of speculation about this particular verse right smack here in the middle of chapter 16. But New Testament scholar Walter Harrelson argues that it is rather John's way of reminding his readers and listeners that the visions are not to provide speculative information about the future, but are a challenge from the living Christ to orient their lives in the present toward the coming eschatological reality. You can leave that up on the screen because we might all need to read it more than once. There's a lot of words in there. Uh, you can tell he's an academic. Eschatological meaning the end of all things, that the coming eschatological, the end of all things reality, that it's not just what he's saying is that this declaration from Jesus is pulling us out of the vision, right? We're so, so we're not so caught up on these visions that John is writing about. This declaration from Jesus pulls us out of the vision and reorients us in the present to be able to say, just in case, you are getting lost in the imagery. Don't forget that these are not just predictive. 
that these, uh, these are intended to help us fix our eyes on Jesus now, to reorient our lives now, to recenter ourselves on who, who, to live with the end in mind. Like here's this eschatological, this end of things reality out there. Based on that, what are you gonna do today? Based on this eschatological reality here, don't forget that Jesus comes like a thief in the night. You don't know when it's going to happen. So what are you doing today? How are you living now to make sure that you uh, are not just so focused on something that's gonna happen in the future? We are... Um, in the kind of ministry, in student ministries, Kyle and I, uh, who I work with, we, um, we always have a group of students who is kind of living with the end in mind, right? Um, we always have a new group of seniors who's coming through and who are having their last homecoming and their last football game and their last prom as they kind of march their way towards graduation. And so Kyle and I talk a lot about this idea of finishing strong, of leaving it all on the field all the way up until the very end and of, of, doing, of giving it your whole heart, of not checking out, but of staying dialed in all the way to the end, of finishing strong, of not mentally having moved on to the next season until you finished the one that you're in. And for seniors, senioritis is a very powerful thing. And so don't so totally give in to your senioritis, mind, body, heart, soul, spirit, right? That you can't be present in, uh, in this, what you have left of this season before you move on to the next one. And some of our students do this phenomenally well and, uh, and others of our students don't. But this particular class of students that has just graduated and is headed off to college, I don't know if it's because of COVID and how much COVID kind of stole from them or, uh, or, if, it's, or if they're just a phenomenal group of people, which is entirely possible. But this group of seniors that we've had have been particularly dialed in to, I am going to soak every last drop of life out of the rest of my senior year until it truly is done, until I am in the car on my way to wherever it is that I am going next on my journey. I am gonna stay dialed in here. I have one student in particular who, um, we had our uh, student leadership team last Sunday before the hangar, and uh, she's a senior, and she was leaving for college on Tuesday, and her, like, not just her, but her mom, like, like nobody is going to be left here in Virginia. Her mom is moving to Georgia, uh, and she's going to college on Tuesday, and so, like, everybody's out of Virginia. But she came to our student leadership team meeting on Tuesday, I'm sorry, on Sunday, uh, even though not a single thing that we talked about in the entire meeting had anything to do with her or was going to impact her life in any way. But she's on the student leadership team, and she was still on the student leadership team on Sunday, so she was going to come to the meeting. She was gonna be fully present. She was gonna give the input she needed to give to our group and uh, because she wasn't done yet. She wasn't done until that night when she got in her car and she drove away. I have, I've had two incredible interns this summer in student ministries, uh, one of them who left a couple of weeks ago to go back to school, and another one, Rachel, who graduated from Fairfax High School in, uh, in June and has been our intern the rest of the summer. And um, Rachel is also leaving for school this week, like packing up and going to college. Uh, and she is, she's got all of the packing to do and all of the friends to say goodbye to and all of the other things to do. But Rachel is gonna be in the hangar, and then she's gonna take our incoming seventh graders out to dinner tonight all the way until we are done this evening. Her responsibilities don't end until tonight. And she has been all the way 100% engaged, maximum impact in her internship this summer. And uh, because she is gonna cross the finish line with every bit of energy that she started the race with. Jesus' reminder to us is how we live now matters just as much as where we end up in the future. 
that this season is just as important as the next one, that what we're doing in this life and how we're living in this life matters just as much as where we spend out the rest of our lives and all of our eternity, that we finish strong in the season that we're in and whatever the calling is that we're in, that we finish this one before we move on to the next one. And now the final bowl. In chapter 16, verse 16, we read this. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. I don't know you, but know about you, but I read that description of the earthquake and right now, today, on August 15th, 2021, all I can think about is Haiti and the massive earthquake that happened there yesterday and the thousands of people that are injured, the hundreds of people that we already know of that have lost their lives. And if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that we have a special relationship with, uh, with Haiti. We have a partner there, Maquette, and Teach Haiti that is, means a lot to us. And so um, we, uh, we are praying for Haiti. We're praying for all of our brothers and sisters in Haiti, but particularly for Maquette and for the students and faculty there at Teach Haiti. Um, because earthquakes are scary whenever and however they happen. They are, uh, they are life-altering many times. And the people here, they're gathered at Armageddon. There's lots of different theories for what Armageddon is, but uh, the one that made the most sense to me this week as I was reading was uh, that Armageddon is translated to Mount Megiddo or the Mount of Megiddo, and the Mount of the Megiddo, Megiddo was the place of several really devastating battles for the Israelites, places where, uh, where they fought and lost in significant ways. And so to say Megiddo to the Israelites, nothing good happens at Megiddo. It's a place of loss, a place of pain, a place of destruction. And this apparent battle has not even begun yet when a voice from the temple throne, God, says it is done. And God's final act of judgment from these bowls Did you catch that line? The cup filled with the wine of the fury of God's wrath is poured out. And it transforms the earth. It's unrecognizable after the earth has experienced God's wrath in this way. And uh, the, the mountains and the islands, are they flee. They're nowhere to be found. And, uh, and the, the landscape of the earth is so totally transformed after this happens. And I was thinking about this week, about this idea that, uh, that against the powers of evil, when God finally answers the powers of evil with what they deserve, when God's justice in its fullest form, when the, the completeness of God's justice, the fullness of God's justice is rained down, that the earth gets completely transformed in ways that make it unrecognizable, that north, south, east, and west don't even mean anything anymore because you don't have the landmarks to tell you where it is. And this really is probably the way that it should be when justice, when God's justice happens here 
here on earth. We see glimpses of this all the time. What we have now, the, the, um, the proximate justice that we experience here, even when we see proximate justice in our own lives, uh, we see how things get transformed, how things get upended, how, how God's proximate justice work in the world now in anticipation of the fullness of justice in the future, how it transforms things, how it uh, turns the world upside down. I don't know if any of you follow Carlos Whitaker or Sharon McMahon, of Sharon Says So, um, but there are two people on Instagram, and I realize I'm talking about Instagram influencers in my message, but these are like solid follows, okay? I don't just throw follow people out there for you to follow, like, but these are, these are solid. So Sharon Says So, Sharon McMahon of Sharon Says So, she's like America's government teacher, and I realize that none of you are interested in following a government teacher on Instagram, but she, um, she's real good, and she kind of came out of nowhere back in the fall, and uh, and her influence just exploded as she was um, in a very like really good government teacher kind of way explaining the events that were unfolding in our country and around the world back last fall and uh, and so and she's continued to do that and um, and then Carlos is uh, he's a he was a rapper and a preacher and now he is a podcaster and an author and uh, and so. Um, Last, they, they didn't know each other. They're internet friends. But they got to know each other. They're both really into nature and animals and stuff. And so they met uh, sometime like right around the winter. And up until that point, Sharon, as she saw her, Insta, all of a sudden like influence just really growing, like her platform really growing, she decided immediately to try to use that for good. And so she spent last winter leading up to the first of the year um, asking her followers to donate to a specific um, account so that they could cancel medical debt. You guys heard about this where you give like 10 cents on the dollar and by giving 10 cents on the dollar, you can cancel like hundreds of thousands of medical debt. And so far to date, her community has canceled over $2 million of medical debt for total strangers. Strangers on the internet who donate to forgive the medical debt of strangers out there. And so she just, this is her thing now. Like this is what she does. She rallies, she calls them the governors and she rallies them to give money so that they can change people's lives, so they can transform people's lives. And one of the people who li whose lives she transformed was Carlos Whitaker and his family after they had had one of the worst weeks of their lives. Back in the fall, they'd had a worse time. Their 17-year-old uh, daughter at the time had spent 21 days in, um, in, the, in Vanderbilt, and this was the fall of 2019, and so that was a really awful time, and they had all of this medical debt saved up from that. But then, this past spring, um, they had their dog died, their house flooded, uh, they, had, they have a farm, and farm animals were attacked by an owl, and there was all this thing around this owl, and then they all tried, after this really traumatic few days, they tried to go to Colorado to escape all of it, and while they were in Atlanta catching their flight, um, a guy dropped his, his hard, a suitcase down the escalator and it landed on Carlos's wife's arm and broke her arm. She had to go to the emergency room in Atlanta and, uh, and all of this stuff. Like they're like under attack. Worst week of their lives. So many things had happened and Sharon gets wind of this and she's like, well, we've got to do something. And so in the time between when Carlos and his, because his, his wife is a force of nature, they decide to go on to Colorado after all. And in the time between when uh, Sharon got wind of it and she like launches this and Carlos and his family get on a plane to fly to Colorado. And just in that span of time, the, the strangers on the internet, the governors, raised so much money. They paid off Carlos's house. They paid for all the repairs. They paid for a new dog. They paid off all the medical debt from Sohalia's 21-day stay in the hospital. They paid, I don't even know, other things. They paid off cars. Carlos landed in Denver with zero debt to his entire family's name. And, you guys, I can't make this up. It happened on Easter. Like, the worst thing. 
bring death and destruction. And on Easter Sunday, it's redemption and life because of what people did. Because when God gets involved in something, it doesn't always look like the way we think it's gonna look. It doesn't always, it gets messy sometimes in the middle. But when God gets involved in something, God's justice transforms the world that we live in, transforms our realities in ways that we can't really predict or explain. The other thing, that I uh, that this passage teaches me is that God really does hate evil. That the sin and the brokenness of the world truly do break God's heart and God will not allow those things to go unanswered forever. That doesn't mean that we're off the hook. As God's faithful servants, we, every single one of us, have been called to participate, to declare the kingdom of God, to work towards justice in the fight against injustice, to call out racism and hatred anywhere and everywhere that we see it, to pursue any and all avenues that will bring an end to human trafficking, and to do whatever it is that we are called to do to bring forth the kingdom of God here in Fairfax and around the world, just as it is in heaven. We are called to do that. We have a responsibility as God's followers to do what Whatever it is that God has entrusted with us to make that happen. And also, the victory is the Lord's. That we can trust God. That God's judgment will be just and in God's time. Both things are true at the same time. We have a responsibility and a calling to the world. And we can trust that God's just judgment will come about in due time. Which brings us back to our mid-project regret syndrome. And whatever it is that you're facing today, that thing that you need to deal with, and it's gonna be hard, and you're not really sure what the way through it is, and it's gonna mess with some stuff in the process, maybe mess with your life in some uncomfortable ways, that thing that you need to do, and you're pretty sure it's gonna be worth it in the end, maybe this passage has some helpful advice for you. First, when we're facing a battle, a conflict, a mountain, that we need to climb or a mission that feels overwhelming, we would do well to start the way that John started by remembering how God did it before in anticipation for what God's going to do next. Remember the former victory over Egypt in anticipation over the future victory over Rome and over the powers of sin and evil. The next victory won't look like the one before. But by recalling it, by retelling it, we can reorient ourselves. We can put ourselves in a place that we need to be to deal with whatever it is that's in front of us, to follow God into the new thing, into the messy middle of whatever the thing is. Imagine if rather than procrastinating or rage cleaning or Insta scrolling when you had something hard in front of you, maybe instead you were to place it before God or remember what God did before so that God can help you Again, you can trust God to help you again. The second thing is to live with the end in mind. Whatever your goal is, whatever it is that your hoped for outcome is, live now with that in mind. Finish strong the season that you're in, knowing that a next, the next season is coming and there's nothing you can do to stop whatever it is that's coming. But the season that's happening right now is the one that you have to live in. And so finish this one strong. However long that finish line is, make sure that you cross it at full speed, having been totally dialed into the current season in anticipation for what is going to come next. And then finally, when God is involved, transformation is inevitable. When God is at work, things happen that we don't expect. It doesn't look the way you thought it was going to look, and that can make us nervous in the messy middle. But remember that voice that says with authority, it is done. God isn't gonna leave you in the messy middle of whatever you're facing. 
Take one step at a time and watch how God redeems and restores right there in your midst. I think this is especially true for the parents and their children that we are going to dedicate to the Lord today. This week in Revelation has reminded me afresh that the battle against evil is both otherworldly and near and present. It is both decided and as it is ongoing. Sin has lost and yet it fights on. And as parents, we fight plenty of our own battles. Some of those battles are over whether or not your two-year-old has to take a bath, like ever. And some of them are over our battles that come in the face of a test that came back abnormal or a diagnosis you weren't expecting. Some are fought around kitchen tables and some are fought on our knees. And I wanna say a word to all the parents who are dedicating their children today. In the midst of what was in many ways a dark and devastating season for many the past year, you brought forth life. And whether you did that through birthing a child or through adopting a child or through fostering a child, you brought forth life in the midst of this past season. Maybe you had that baby before the world shut down. Maybe you had it after. Regardless, you have been parenting a tiny person, stewarding this little life that God has given you in the midst of all of this. And so you know as well as anyone that there can be both tremendous joy and tremendous pain all at the same time. You know that you can laugh and cry in the same hour, that you can be so filled with happiness and pride and also never before felt so unworthy or alone or unqualified. And yet here you are, making this humble declaration before all of us that you will do all you can do to teach your child the ways of Jesus, to know the God who fights for them, to trust the source of love that triumphs over sin, to be faithful to the one who never fails us. Parents, I wanted to tell you that there are a number of us on staff, myself included, who um, are walking this journey with you, who had babies in the midst of COVID. And, uh, and so whether the baby that you had was before or after, you know what it is to maybe, um, maybe like myself and my husband, for, uh, for me to go to every single doctor's appointment by myself and for him to be waiting at home, especially, you know, at that first one, when you're just wanting to know if there's a heartbeat or not. You know, maybe what it is there in the very beginning when, um, when we weren't sure what was gonna be like in the delivery room, if, if uh, in my case, if he was even gonna be able to be in there with me when I delivered our daughter, and there was that, that scariness when um, so many, so many different things that were, that were scary because of the unknown, because of the aloneness that was so present for pregnant moms during the season of this, you've lived that. Maybe you have lived having to go to all of the pediatrician appointments by yourself and doing all of the shots by yourself and all the things that can be hard in that season. There are ways in which you understand there's been an aloneness. And what I want you to experience today, I want you to know that you are not alone because this community, this church, we see you. If you, because of the time of, in our world that your baby came into the world have felt unseen, things you thought they were gonna go one way and they just didn't look anything like that and you have felt unseen, I want you to know that you are seen by us today. And we are walking this journey with you that we 
as a church declare today that we stand in your battle with you, that we celebrate your victories with you. And as we will, we will help you to regroup in your failures. We will help you to remember God's previous victories in your life in anticipation of the future victories that you will experience. We believe your children are not just the future of the church, that they are the church. And we believe in them and we believe in you and in this calling that you have for this good fight right now. So in just a moment, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing a song of response together. And, um, and when we sing, if you are dedicating a child today, then we'd like for you to kind of collect that child from uh, the nursery or from wherever they are and to kind of gather in the back of the sanctuary so that we can bring you all in together. Linda Burton, our nursery and preschool director, has written a call and response prayer just for Fairfax Church for this dedication weekend. And, um, and if you'll allow us, a couple of Linda and myself and Kathleen, we would like to um, anoint your baby and you with oil. Just a symbolic, uh, symbolic thing that we do in order to indicate that you have been set apart for this purpose and for this calling. And we want to pray over you. And, um, and then we're going we're gonna to do all of that together and we're going to sing some more and it's going to be great. So, um, so let me pray for us. And then parents, if you will, um, collect your children and we will see all of you back here in just a few minutes. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we do trust you in the midst of whatever it is that we are facing. We trust you with the small things that are happening in our lives in the day-to-day. We trust you, God, we trust you with Haiti. As our hearts break for the Haitian people all over again, we trust you to be working out a miracle there. We trust you with Maquette and with Teach Haiti and the faculty and staff there. We pray for them, God. We pray for them to be okay, for them to be safe. And we trust you. God, I pray for every person in this room who maybe has something looming before them that they need to handle, they need to deal with. God, may they deal with it in your power by the power of your name, by the power of your presence, may you help them to get through it, even if it gets very messy before it gets better. Help them to see the way through, to stay fixed on that vision for what things could be like if they finish it. And God, these parents, as they are just starting this thing, may we as a church live up to the calling you have given us to stand beside them as we dedicate them and their children to the Lord. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray.